Whenever I sit down to read the Bible personally or to study, I always ask myself this one question. God, why is this included in the Bible? Because we believe as evangelical Christians that the Bible is God-inspired. We get that from the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, that all Scripture is God-inspired and profitable. And we also know from John that there are many more things that happened than were recorded. So not everything that Jesus did and not everything that the apostles did was recorded. And the Holy Spirit chose to move the authors, again, Peter writes about that, to move the authors of the Bible to include certain pieces of church history, certain parts of Jesus' story, and to leave out other parts. John says that, that there's many things that, that Jesus did that aren't recorded. The book of Acts gives us 30 years, the first 30 years of church history, and not everything that happened is recorded. So I have to ask myself, God, why did you choose to include these? I mean, it could have been a much shorter book in some ways as well. Could have been a much longer book if everything was included. Could have been a much shorter account. And as I came to verses 32 on to the end of chapter 9, I asked myself, why are these stories in here? Because at the end of chapter 9, or excuse me, at the end of the last message we had, chapter 9, verse 31, uh, we left with the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, having, having wreaked havoc on the church, then getting saved, now his life being in danger and being let down over the wall and having to make an escape back to his home city in Tarsus there. Now the church has a little bit of peace. And I thought, well, that'd be a great time to just jump into chapter 10, the story of Peter going to the household of Cornelius. And so I asked myself, well, why, why did you choose to include these two almost random accounts? We jump from chapter 9 really focusing on Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. And then we jump back to Peter. We haven't seen anything from Peter since chapter 8, verse 25, where he was really rebuking Simon the magician, if you remember that story from a number of weeks ago. So there's that the little interlude there with the story of Saul of Tarsus. Now we jump back to Peter, and verse 32 begins with, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in in Luda. It's not Lida, it's Luda. That's how you'd pronounce that. So we're back to Peter. He's now gone on some sort of a uh, missionary journey of his own. Remember, he had been centered there in Jerusalem, as had all the disciples, when the persecution broke out from the Apostle Paul that, that he sort of headed up, or again, Saul of Tarsus. And uh, things were pretty scary. A lot of people were scattered. And some of the places they were scattered were all around Jerusalem because of the persecution. And so now everything is quiet. Peter says, hey, maybe I should go bring sort of this apostolic authority. Maybe I should go and visit some of the believers that were scattered and see what they're doing, see how they are, you know, visit with them. And so it seems that he goes to visit, maybe strengthen the people that have been scattered. Remember, they were all based in Jerusalem after Pentecost. And the scattering, the persecution drove them out into all different directions. These folks that Peter's going to visit have been driven west of Jerusalem toward the Mediterranean Sea. So he heads out on this journey to uh, Luda. There's a road that goes from Jerusalem basically to the coast where Joppa is. And this is the, maybe the first stop on that road. It's just about five miles outside of Jerusalem. So he doesn't make it very far. And he runs into, verse 33 says, a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, 
Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Luda and Sharon, the plain of Sharon is right along the coast there, the Mediterranean Sea. All who dwelt at Luda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Well, there's some great little truths in there, right? There's some great nuggets, and we'll, we'll mine out some of those nuggets, I guess you should say. But, you know, it's kind of an independent little story. And I thought, well, God, why is that in there? And a few things sort of jumped out at me, and I'm not going to share those with you now. We'll come back to those later on. But there's something that jumped out at me about that story. Maybe it'll jump out at you as you read it. But before we press on to the story of Tabitha, let's just look at a couple things, because it's a pretty remarkable story. If you've been bedridden eight years literally paralyzed. Uh, the Greek word paraluo is, is used to describe him. He's been paralyzed for eight years. Whether it's a spinal cord injury or, or leg injury or whatever it was, this guy had been relegated to the life of a beggar, no doubt. He's probably a disciple, although it doesn't say that. He went to visit uh, the saints. And whenever the Bible says came down, that's always a reference to Jerusalem as, as high ground. And whenever you leave Jerusalem, you go down. So he went down to visit the saints in Luda. By the way, if you've ever been with us to Israel, we fly into Ben-Gurion Airport. That's where Luda, ancient Luda was, Ben-Gurion Airport. Matter of fact, Joppa or Jaffa encompasses the, all of that area now, including where Ben-Gurion Airport is and and even to the coast. And we'll talk more about that as we uh, get down to the next section. He finds this man named Aeneas. We know very little about him. We don't know how old he is. We, uh, we don't know his family status. We don't even really know if he's a believer, although most people assume that he was. But we do know he's paralyzed. He's unable to walk. He's a beggar, no doubt. But maybe the church is taking care of him a little bit. So Peter says he found a certain man. So we've got all these saints in this area called Luda, and the highlight, the focus comes to this one, Aeneas. And Peter says to him, Jesus the Christ heals you. Now, I like that right off the bat because Peter knows it's not him that's doing it. But we get confused about that. If you watch some TV ministries or maybe you've, you've seen some uh, of those types of ministries, it's very easy to miss Christ for the sake of the pastor. We think the pastor or the apostle or this guy, he's selling his book set. He's got his tape set or his videos on the seven steps to healing or the six spiritual things you can do to bring on your healing. And Peter gets into none of that. Remember, they tried to give him the, the credit. He says, don't look at me as if my power could do this. I don't have any power. And so I like that. It sets me free in a way, doesn't it? It sets you free in a way that what happens or doesn't happen for people is not based on my power or lack of it. If it was up to me to bring healing to people's lives, I got a hard enough time with the guy in the mirror. Jesus has a hard enough time with the guy in the mirror. I'm glad it's not up to me. But sometimes people come to those in ministry and, and look to us or to that person or to that guy for help. You got to help me. And we, all I can say is, hey, you got to go to the only one who can. My job, our job, folks, not to point people to Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, or not to point people to this ministry or that ministry, to the Lord. To the Lord. And that's what Peter says. Of course, when Peter came to Luda, who did he bring with him? He brought Jesus with him. Because Jesus, Peter's filled with the Spirit. Wherever Peter goes, Jesus goes. So because Peter is there, had got going out of Jerusalem, 
Jesus is there. Wherever you are, that's where Jesus is. Because his spirit dwells in you. And so Peter, being there in body, can say to Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ, literally is healing you right now. Is healing you. That's great words. I've watched people come to this church and watched as Jesus, the Christ, heals them right in our midst, watching them. Some more quickly than others, admittedly so. And then he says, arise, make your bed. It's like there's no question. Peter uh, operating with the gift of healing. So what does Aeneas do? Does he say, I don't think so. Dude, I've been paralyzed for eight years. I ain't getting up. Just as those that uh, Jesus spoke with, he told the man in the synagogue, stretch forth your hand. He had a, a lame arm. And he tells the guy, stretch forth your hand. And, and literally, he's, he's probably hidden it all his life. Probably hidden it from people. Didn't want, I don't want, you know, if you've got a deformity, you like to hide that from people. And Jesus says, stretch it forth. And by faith, he stretches it forth. And it's healed. And by faith, it always takes faith, always comes back to faith. Any healing in your life will come back to God's power and your faith. The one place where Jesus says he couldn't do many miracles because of the people's unbelief. He, he wanted to do more, could have done more, but because of unbelief, he couldn't. And I don't want that to be the situation in my life. I don't want that to be the situation in your life. But if you don't believe it, it'll never happen for you. You'll never expect it. You'll never operate based on that. And he says to the guy, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Now, Peter hasn't gone all over the place to every person doing this. This was God determined. Somehow Peter knew this guy's day to be healed. He says, arise, make your bed. And he arose two weeks later. He arose next year. He arose immediately. Once he heard the truth, he responded to it immediately. So all, I like verse 35, so all who dwelt at Luda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. His story, his testimony, he didn't, even, he didn't have to share it with a word. He didn't have to say a thing. He didn't have to tell people about this Jesus who healed him. They saw him. They saw him. Just like people see you. You are the greatest testimony of the power of God. You really are. You don't even have to say a word. Just live, and people that knew you before see you now and go, I don't know how to explain that. Something has happened in his life. Something has happened in her life. And people respond to that. At least these people did. So the church is growing. Why? Because they saw him and turned to Peter. No, they didn't turn to Peter. Peter did it right. Peter got it right. Why? He led them to the Lord. People saw his good works and then say, oh, we got to worship Peter and have statues to Peter everywhere. They saw him and turned to the Lord. That's where we want people to turn. So a miracle happens as Peter is off ministering, heading toward the west side of Jerusalem. Verse 36 says, now at Joppa, or again, modern day Jaffa, 10 miles in case you're counting, from Luda, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Not many people naming their daughters Dorcas these days, 
but Tabitha certainly is popular. Tabitha is the Hebrew, or literally, really more accurately, the Aramaic. Her name means gazelle. Beautiful animal, majestic animal, a powerful in its own right. So this is her name. When she was born, her parents looked at her and tried to determine what do we name her. And, and Tabitha is what they thought of as they looked at her as, oh, look at our little gazelle, honey. But it's translated, Dorcas, that's the Greek, means the same thing. It means gazelle. And look at the description of her. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Which she did. You easily read past that, which she did. We could easily read right over that. This is what she did. She did something. And I just like that. She had a lot of good ideas. She made great plans to do things, but just never got around to them. There comes a time in your life where you stop talking about doing things and you just do them. You stop waiting till the kids are off in college and the dog dies and retirement comes. You just do them. She was full of good works. Would anybody say that about you? Would, would that be the description? And these good works, by the way, are just, and charitable deeds, are things that she did for those in need. We're going to find out she cared for widows. It's not highly esteemed, not a big thing. That's, she's not going to be on the front page of Yaffa Times because of what she does. Uh, but man, the people she ministered to sure appreciated it. She was full of good works. When's the last time you did something outside of your own family for someone in need that you wouldn't really get any credit for at the time? And how often does that take place in your life? In a way, this woman, Tabitha, is sort of a Proverbs 31 woman. Maybe you're familiar with Proverbs 31. It came to mind as I was reading it. The Proverbs 31 woman says she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She goes to the gym. She works out. I like that about the Proverbs 31 woman. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff. It's, this is a sewing term. And her hand holds the spindle, sewing or weaving. She extends her hand to the poor, yet she reaches out her hands to the needy. The next verse says she cares for her household. She's not afraid of snow for her household. Her household is clothed with scarlet. So she's got this ministry to her own family, to her children and to her husband, and that's for sure. But she also manages to reach beyond that a little bit to those in her community that are in need. Not long ago, I was up in Philadelphia. My parents live in Philadelphia, and occasionally we'll go. They live right there in Center City, so we'll go and just do some of the tours, see the Liberty Bell Independence Hall, we'll kind of walk around the city. And there's a lot of uh, cemeteries there, old churches, Christ churches there, a lot of uh, very well-known uh, historical figures in U.S. history are buried in that area. But my uh, eye caught one tombstone for someone who I have no idea who she is. Most of you would have never heard. No one would have ever heard of her. Her name is Mrs. Susan M. Gapper. Anybody ever heard of Susan Gapper? No, we've never heard of her. She died on July 31st, 1838 at age 82. And this is what her tombstone said. Quote, Remarkable for vigor of intellect and a highly cultivated mind. Her religious faiths founded upon conviction. A full believer in the truths of the gospel, she derived from them support under severe trials here and rested upon them all her hopes 
hereafter. And it closed with this note, the gratitude of one who, during a long series of years, received from her many benefits, has caused this monument to be erected to her memory. We don't know who Susan Gapper is, but someone did. She had touched somebody's life. I'd heard it said, great actions follow great convictions. This woman was a woman of conviction. And the interesting thing as we read on, she's known for all these things which she's doing. We don't get the description of them just yet. Verse 37 says, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And no doubt when that happened, the church grieved heavily because she was known in the church. She wasn't the kind of person that when she left the church, people didn't notice. When this kind of person leaves the church or leaves planet earth, people notice. Because she had a ministry that touched people's lives, that that made people feel important that weren't otherwise feeling very important. And she died. And it leaves a gap. It leaves a void in the church, doesn't it? When you die, if you were to move, if you were to leave, would there be a gap somewhere in here? Would there be a law? Would we sense a loss or not? The challenging question is, would people notice if I left? Would something stop happening if I wasn't here? Would people be grieving because the ministry I had no longer exists? Man, I, and I've known some people around here. I know some people right now that, man, if you left this church, some things would not happen anymore. Some important, valuable things. Things to do with people. And you're the ones that are quietly slugging it out. You're not up here preaching from the stage. You're not leading worship or seeing worship. You're doing behind-the-scenes kinds of things. And you're touching people's lives. And she died. And when they had washed her, they cared for her body. That was customary. They laid her in an upper room. And since Luda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. So they send the ten miles. They send two uh, guys out. Hey, go get Peter. Now, the interesting thing is never before in the Bible do we read about someone being sent for when the person who is being ministered to or desired to be ministered to has already died. Usually, they're still alive when the person is sent for. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Even Lazarus, when they sent for Jesus, he was still alive. And Jairus' daughter was still alive. And here, she's died, and they say, hey, go get Peter. Now, do they expect that he's going to raise her from the dead? Maybe. Or do they just want him to come and say a few words at the funeral? I I don't know. Do they want to just share with him what an awesome saint God had produced, the Spirit of God had produced? I don't know. He with the gift of healing, she with the gift of mercy. They said, don't delay in coming. Then, verse uh, 39, then Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. Now, at funerals, it was customary to have professional mourners. You'd pay them, they'd play music, and they'd you know, weep and wail and, and loudly, and it would just create a whole scene. I don't think they needed that here. I think there would have been plenty of natural weeping and mourning and they were just showing peter all the things she had made look at the workmanship look at the care that went into the production of this garment that she made for me and notice who she's ministering to who's there around her it's the widows it's the widows now you may have a a fancy job and a high paying salary and all those things 
Who will be at your funeral? Who's going to be there weeping for you when you die? The Bible tells me, Romans chapter 12, associate with the humble. I believe I'm quoting that right. Associate with the humble. Was she a widow herself? Possibly, remember, this is a port city. Joppa was the main port for Israel until later on they built Haifa in more recent history and some other ports. Now it's not the port of the status it used to be. But it was a port city and from what I read, a very dangerous port city due to the winds that would come across the boats. Many a boat crashed on its way into the port at Joppa. Maybe that's how some of these ladies became widows. Maybe, that's, maybe Dorcas herself was a widow. We don't know for sure. It doesn't mention anything about her husband. So some have speculated that she was. And there they were showing. Uh, a woman named Maya Angelou said this, I've learned that people will forget what you said and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I think there's some truth to that. Think about teachers. Teachers you've had in your past. Everybody's been to school, at least for some time. Think about your favorite teacher. Was it because they were the smartest teacher on the staff? Was it because they were the best dressed or best looking? What do you remember them for? What is it that stands out? You remember how they treated you, either for better or for worse. But that's who I remember. As I think back to teachers in my life or mentors in my life, it's people and the way they treated me, the way they poured into me. And that's why so many ministries uh, take the name of, the, of a Dorcas ministry, a Tabitha ministry. This woman has inspired so many throughout church history to do these kind of acts and good works. And for us, it's no different today. Good works. Titus, Paul tells Titus, tell your people to be careful to maintain good works. All the time. All the time in the church. Well, what does Peter do? He sees her. They come in. They're all showing him the garments. Everybody is weeping. There's not a dry eye, as I said, in the place. But Peter put them all out in verse 40. He says, and knelt down and prayed. He, put, he sends everybody out of the room. He says, hey, everybody out. Maybe they, they don't know what he's going to do. He sends them out. And he turns to the body. Interesting wording, isn't it? He turns to the body. He doesn't say he turns to Tabitha. He says he turns to the body She's dead. Her spirit has left her body. And he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Man, that's the kind of funeral I want to go to. Talk about turning your mourning into joy. But now maybe Tabitha's going, man, why'd you go and do that? Should have left me alone. She opens her eyes. She had no idea what had happened. You know, she died, and then all of a sudden she opens her eyes. She sees Peter sits up. Like she feels like she was asleep, no doubt. Whoa, power nap. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Man, you want to talk about a church booming with faith. <laughs> when you see something like that, that leaves an impact in your life. Then so do a lot of things. And of course, verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. So everybody starts to hear about this and man, it causes a wave of belief. Now that was similar to what was said back in verse 35. Everyone who dwelt in Luda and Sharon saw him turn to the Lord. And now after this miracle, it became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord. 
one of the things we see consistent in both of these stories, there's two miracles, all right? We're used to reading about miracles. We came through the Gospel of Mark. We've seen miracles. Now it's the Spirit of God doing these miracles through the giftedness in Peter's life. He's not going around to all the funerals in Joppa. This is a selected one. Just because God did it once, you don't make a mandate of it for everybody, every time, all places. This is not something that happens all the time, but it still does happen. I have heard stories, you have heard anecdotally of missionaries on mission fields. There have been people raised from the dead. God chooses to do it when he wants to do it. It's in his control. The gifts are his to give as he wills. So that's one consistent thing is, is these two miracles. Another consistent thing is we see this is a time of tremendous church growth. Man, people are seeing things happen. They're seeing the miraculous happen, and I long for that. I love, not just the miraculous of, you know, healings, and, and that's great too. I love to see that. But the miraculous of people getting saved, marriages getting saved, lives being changed, addictions being overcome. I mean, on and on, you know, Grumpy people becoming kind. Stingy people becoming giving. That'll really get people's attention. If you've been known for your stinginess and being a tightwad, you get saved and all of a sudden God makes you generous, people notice that stuff. What do you want this time? How much do you want? No, 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 grumble, 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 grumble. You know, changes your character. When people see that stuff, it's life-changing. But here's the thing I want to make note of. The thing that really stood out to me. Did, did it stand out to you when you heard the words to Aeneas, arise and make your bed? Did that ring a bell somewhere in your mind? Maybe it did. Maybe it rang a bell. If you remember the story about the guy that was paralyzed 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. All the people are waiting there around the pool. And when the waters were stirred, they'd all make a run for it. And this poor guy, he couldn't walk. And he said, I had nobody to carry me into the pool and woe is me and I can't do it. And then Jesus says, hey, rise, take up your bed and walk. It's not exact, but it's very similar. It's similar enough that it caught my attention when I read it. And so Jesus had done that miracle. And just by speaking a word to it, Jesus did it. And the guy rose and, and walked after 38 years. This is eight years. But then this one really has to get your attention if you know your Bible. Because do you remember Jairus' daughter they sent to Jesus? This is in John chapter 5 was the, uh, the first one. Second one, Mark chapter 5. Jairus goes himself to see Jesus. says, my daughter is, is sick. She's almost dead. She's dying. Can you come? And on the way back, Jesus gets detained by the woman with the issue of blood. And then two people come from Jairus' house and say, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's already dead. That's too late. But Jesus goes anyway, and there the, all the professional mourners are there, and they're mourning and weeping. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Goes in with the parents to this young girl's room. Do you remember her name, anybody? I don't know if I remember her name. I don't know what her name is said. But what he says to her is Talitha Kumi, which means little girl arise. It's one letter different from Tabitha which is here, Tabitha arise. He said, Talitha kumi. He says, Tabitha kumi. And again, he had put, Jesus had put everybody out just like Peter did. And then just like Tabitha here, that little girl arose and Jesus said, get her something to eat. So we see two miracles, a lot of church growth as a result, a lot of response, but 
two things pointed out that are very close to things that Jesus did. And so the thing that I took away from this for myself, and I think for you and I, just a simple reminder, is that Peter was just like Jesus. He was just doing what Jesus did. And he had learned, evidently, from the years and the time he spent watching Jesus minister as a disciple, as a follower, he had learned about how Jesus treats people and how he handles situations. And the question is, as you read your Bible, as you look at the life of Jesus, do you make that jump? We don't want to just look at this as history. If this were just history, we'd have a class and say, okay, now, where did Tabitha live? Joppa, right, good answer. I and mean, we can look at the Bible like a textbook, a history book, and we can answer the questions. But unless you make the applications, it will remain dead to you. And so we're meant to read this and go, wow, Peter, filled with the Spirit, what's being produced is the ministry of Christ in him. That's what should be produced in you, filled with the Spirit, is the life and the ministry of Christ coming from you. The Bible says you have the mind of Christ. That's scary. We don't ever use it, at least not as often as we should. You have the mind of Christ. Think about that. What if I was in math class and you could have the mind of Einstein? That'd be awesome. I think I should ace geometry if I had the mind of Einstein or calculus or any other thing. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, says to the disciples in Corinth, the same thing I'm going to say to you today. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, the imitate me part is kind of tough. But only imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, people get saved. They come to know Jesus. But they don't know what that looks like. When you're a child and you're newborn, how do kids learn? They learn by imitation. They learn because they watch their parents. And then you're, you know, you're, you're three-year-old or you're four-year-old or whatever. You know, you're six-year-old. You're in the grocery store. And, and they say they utter a curse word out loud. And you look at them like horrified, like, oh, you know, where did they learn it? They heard you say it. And they repeated it at a most inconvenient time. Or nowadays they heard it on TV or their iPad or something like that. But uh, they learn by imitation. They saw their friend at daycare throw a tantrum. So they come home and they say, wow, it worked for him. He got attention. So they come home and something doesn't go right. They drop themselves on the floor kicking and screaming. And then they look to see if you respond. And if they don't respond, they'll try again. And if you don't respond, then they say, well, must not work here. Must, must, must be locational. Must only work there. They imitate. And Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's a neat word. It's the word mimetes in Greek, which is where we get the word mime. I know nobody likes mimes these days. What is it against mimes? Nobody likes them. But, you know, because they're just mimicking you. And we take that in a, in a negative connotation. To mimic is to kind of, you know, you say something, they mimic it back in a bad sense. But if someone's doing a good thing and you start to mimic it, you're doing what they did. You become a mirror image, so to speak, of what they did. So the question again for you and I is, can someone say, can you say to somebody else, imitate me as I imitate Christ? I mean, could your life be a pattern? If there was a new believer, I said, ah, we got this person today. They just got saved today. Praise the Lord. And everybody gives a big cheer. Say, but we need someone to disciple them. And we said, all right, we pick you. And I'm being careful not to point at anybody specifically here. We pick, but point at yourself. What if we picked you? And we said, hey, we're going to hook you up. 
this new believer uh, is going to spend time with you and they're going to imitate you to find out what it's like to be a Christian. <laughs> watch how you are with your spouse. Watch how you are at work. Watch how you are with the kids. I mean, when I was learning how to be a horseshoer, I apprenticed. I basically worked with someone who showed me what to do. Whatever they did, I tried to imitate it. I did a horrible job at first, but got better over time. But I had to find someone. When I looked, I said, I want to find the best person I can find because I know I'm going to become like them. That's what happens when you imitate somebody. You become like them. A disciple, when he's fully taught, becomes like his teacher. And that's why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why Peter is not imitating other people. He's not imitating. He's, he's imitating Christ. He's following Christ. He's mimicking Christ in his life. And he's becoming, therefore, more like Christ. And the Spirit of God working in him, both to will and to do for God's good pleasure. That's what I got out of this passage. That's the thing that stuck out to me as being most unique. I can't say, thus saith the Lord. That's why these passages are in here. But uh, I certainly think as we get ready to see Peter heading to Cornelius, uh, the final note in that chapter is that Peter stays with a guy named Simon the Tanner. Uh, that's not because he spent a lot of time at the beach. He worked with animal skins, dead stuff. And part of the way they would tan hides is using uh, water from the sea, but also animal feces, manure, they would use to tan hides. So it was considered by the Jews a very nasty, nasty profession, an unclean profession. And here we have this Jewish guy now residing for a time in Joppa at the house of a, of a man who's a tanner. Something's changing. Something's being prepared in the heart of the Apostle Peter. And we'll see that challenged even more in three Sundays in Acts chapter 10. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, oh, that we would uh, be worked on by your Spirit conforming us into the image of Your Son, imitating, watching, learning from Christ. Lord, may our lives not be about a set of rules of do's and don'ts, but that we would have our eyes on the Christ, watching how He works, watching what He does, and doing those things. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and what it's done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.